This morning, if you have a copy of God's Word, look with us to our passage found in the book of Colossians chapter 1. Book of Colossians chapter 1. As we continue our series this uh, month on growing in faith. And the whole series is based on this one chapter. Book of Colossians chapter 1. While you're turning that passage, let me uh, give you a very important announcement that uh, tonight, uh, we're planning to have a family meeting, so therefore we will not be streaming it tonight. Uh, and then we'll be doing the same information this Wednesday night and talking about the, the new uh, the building project. Now, originally we had said the goal was to have a meeting tonight and then have another meeting on Wednesday night in order that we will vote at the end of the month. We are not going to vote at the end of the month. However, we are still going to present to you what we have and how we are going to proceed forward. And so tonight will be a time of presentation, a time of Q&A, but also a time of worship. We're going to worship and pray uh, as tonight. It's not, just, it's not just going to be a business session. It's going to be a time to uh, come before God to seek his wisdom. But tonight and Wednesday night, if you can't come tonight, we totally understand. Uh, but Wednesday night at 6 o'clock, the same information will be presented. And this will uh, show you and help you understand uh, how we are going to continue to proceed forward with our children building project. Book of Colossians, chapter 1. Paul is writing to this church at Colossae. The problem of the church, they had false teachers. And these false teachers were coming into the church and they were telling lies about Jesus. And so Paul is answering these lies in this letter. And he really does an incredible job, and we're about to read this passage, one of the best passages in the Bible about who Jesus is. So look what he says in Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 13. Talking about Jesus, he says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, are the things on earth or things in heaven. Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we look at this text, Father, as we see this incredible passage telling us who Jesus is, I pray, Father, it will become alive to us this morning. And, Father, we will understand who Jesus really is. And, Father, that we take that knowledge. And, Father, may you implant it into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In physics, there is a theory that is considered the holy grail of physics. It is called the theory of everything is a hypothetical framework explaining all known physical phenomena in the universe. In other words, it's a theory that explains time and space. It's a theory that explains time before time and, and space beyond space. And physicists are trying to discover this theory of everything, something that would explain everything. Now, 
Stephen Hawkins searched for it for years. Toward the end of his life, he came out and said, I don't think it exists. But whatever the case, it's still considered the holy grail of physics. Is there a theory of everything? Is there one thing that can explain everything in the universe? Well, I don't know if there's a theory of everything, but I do know there is one thing that explains everything in the universe. I I do know there's one thing, one supreme thing that puts everything in perspective. You know, language is funny, especially the English language. We, We say words and we don't even know how we start saying those words. So for example, if you go home today and, and you're going to look something up on your computer, you will say, I'm going to Google it. That, that's a word. The problem is, why don't we say we're going to go Yahoo it? By the way, Google is not a verb, it's a noun. In fact, it's a brand name. But we are so accustomed to saying, I'm going to Google it. Google is one of those rare brands that has become a word for generic use. For example, many times we'll say, hey, is there, do you have a Kleenex? Well, Kleenex is a brand name. You're supposed to say tissue. Yeah, like, right. If you're searching, you're supposed to say, I'm going to search for it. Yeah, right. Now, for those of us in the South, we understand this concept because every time we go to a restaurant, we ask for a Coke. Now, what we mean is, I don't care if it's Dr. Pepper, Sprite, or Pepsi, I'm going to say, I want a Coke. Their job is to tell me what kind of brand they have, then I'll tell them. But that's how we do it. Now, if you go up north, good luck. They have no clue what you're talking about. But Google has become so large, we are now using it as a verb. Now, consider this. 70,000 searches on Google every second. 227 million searches every hour. 5.4 billion searches every day. 90% of all searches on the computer are on Google. Bing is number two with 2.7%. Yahoo is number three at 1.6%. And my favorite trivia of the week is, do you know what the number one search on Bing was of all time? Google. I don't know why I love that stat, but I do. Every day, 246 unique customers in the United States, search for something. 75% of all searches in the United States go to Google. Now, here's what we have because of this. Now, this is a historian dream because we can go back and look at the searches and we can understand years. We can understand life. So, I was going to do 2021, but I'm going to do 2020 because that was a crazy year. Here are the top 10 searches of Google that year. Google Classrooms. Or virtual classrooms. You know why? No one's ever done it before. We had to look it up on Google to figure out how to do this. Number nine, Joe Biden. It was a presidential election. Number eight, coronavirus symptoms. For all those hypochondriacs that checked it every day. Number seven, coronavirus updates. I mean, we didn't know much about no COVID. Every day something new was coming out. Number six, India versus New Zealand. Any idea? Soccer. We were so bored in the United States, we were trying to find (laughs) some sport out there. Number five, IPL. 
Don't look it up. I see some of you trying to cheat. This, this shows you how bored we were in the United States. That's the, national, that's the International League for Cricket. It came to that. We were looking up cricket. Number four was Zoom because no one knew how to do Zoom, and now everybody's doing Zoom. Uh, number three is Kobe Bryant because he died that year. Number two, election. That was the election year. And number one, the coronavirus. Now, you go all the years and see the top searches, but here's what you'll find. At the end of the day, all these searches might answer a question, but at the end of the day, it makes no real difference in your life. And none of these questions that you look up on Google will ever make a difference for you for eternity. But there is a real source which answers everything. There is a real source that will make a difference in your life and make a difference eternally. There is a source, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the key to everything. And that is what Paul is writing to the Colossians. He is trying to tell them how important Jesus is because the false teachers were coming around and they were denying the importance of Jesus. They were saying, Jesus is not that important. Hell, he may have been a good teacher, but he's not that important. Oh, he was just a good teacher, but he wasn't like God. He's not God. There are other good teachers. They were saying, you really don't need Jesus in your life. Or they were trying to dethrone him. They were saying, no, you can follow Jesus, just don't make him king. You can follow his teaching, but, but just don't center your life around him. And so they were saying all this. They were saying, look, you can follow Jesus, but whatever you do, do not give him preeminence in your life. Oh, you might give him prominence, but don't give him preeminence in your life. And so here comes Paul saying, no, you're wrong. Because these false teachers, they were called Gnostics, and they were saying the material world is evil. Matter is evil. Therefore, God couldn't have created the world. And because matter is evil, Jesus couldn't have been a human being. They were told that Jesus, oh, he might have been the son of God, but he wasn't the unique son of God. There were there many sons of God. Jesus was just one of many. And here comes Paul. And Paul says, do you not understand? You're wrong. These false teachers are saying there's not one single way of salvation. You can get to God many ways. And here comes Paul. He's saying, guys, you are wrong. And in this passage, this text, we find one of the greatest descriptions of Jesus. Look with me as we examine the truths that Paul gives about Jesus. The first truth. Jesus is preeminent to our salvation. Jesus is preeminent to our salvation. Verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sin. Paul says the greatest problem you and I have is our sin problem because no one can solve that problem. We need a Savior. Years ago, I had a conversation with a man who belonged to another religion. And we were debating or talking about Jesus. During that conversation with this man, he was a leader in his religion locally. And I said, well, Answer me this, what do you do with your sin? And he looked at me and he paused and he said, I hope God is loving enough to overlook them. And I thought, that is so sad. You're hoping that God will overlook your sin for no reason, for no cause. But God cannot do that. God is a holy God, a just God. So what does he do? He sends us Jesus. 
He is the preeminent to our salvation. Look at the words that, that Paul uses. He says, verse 13, he delivered us. He delivered us. We are in danger of spending eternity apart from God. And, and so God sends Jesus to deliver us, to, to take over. He says he transferred us. Now, some translation will use the, the word translated, I think in the King James Version. That, that was the idea of taking a population to another area. So in Paul's day, if you conquered a region, you would take the survivors and you would take them and you would bring them to your kingdom. In other words, you take the losers of the battle and bring them to your kingdom. Paul says Jesus transferred us. He took us who gave our life to him, winners if you will, and he brings us to the kingdom. We come with him. He uses the word redeem in verse 14 in whom we have redemption. This is the idea of a prisoner who, who's been released because of a ransom. Now, please understand, Jesus did not pay a ransom to Satan to rescue us. Satan doesn't have that much power. What Jesus did, he redeemed us. He paid a ransom for our sins. He didn't pay anything to Satan. He also said in verse 14, he has forgiven us in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. I love that word because it means to cancel and to take away. When Jesus forgives you of your sins, not only does he cancel it, he picks it up and he moves it away from you. He sent it somewhere else. And by the way, there is no other way you can get rid of your sins, your failures, your mistakes, other than through Jesus. And Paul is saying, I want you to understand that Jesus is preeminent to our salvation. There is no other way to salvation. And then Paul says, Jesus is a person. Jesus is a person. Look what he says in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What Paul is saying in this, he said, I want you to understand, Jesus is not a phantom. He's not a spirit. He's not a figment of our imagination. He is a real person. He is a real person. And to describe this, he uses a key word, a word that we use a lot. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, that word image in the Greek language is the word icon. It's spelled different, but it's the same word we use, icon. Now, the word icon we understand means an image of something, but in the Greek language, it is stronger. So in the Greek wor world, the word icon meant representation. It was something that represented something. This word is used 23 times in the New Testament. The first time it is used when Jesus asked for a coin, he said, give me a coin. Whose image, whose icon is on the coin? It was Caesar. In other words, Jesus is saying, look at the coin, that image, that icon represent the Roman Empire. That represents Caesar. When you see that image, you think about the Roman Empire. That's representation. But the word can, in Greek can also mean manifestation. In other words, the word icon means to bring the presence to you. There's a present there, you see it, and now it's to you. So, Go to your computer. You open your screen. There's icons all over the screen. And let's say like Word document. You see that Word document icon, you know, oh, that means Word. That represents Word. There's no doubt in your mind that represents Word. And then you click on Word, what happens? It appears. It's manifested itself. 
So Jesus represents God, but more than represents God, he manifests God because he is God. That's what Paul is saying. Jesus doesn't just represent God, he is God. So when Jesus says something, that means God said it. When Jesus asks for something, that means God asks for something. When Jesus calls us, that means God calls us. Remember, remember the disciples? They asked Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus said, how long have I have to be with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm the image. I represent him, but also I manifested. I am God. Now, some of you may be thinking, but wait a minute. Isn't man made in the image of God? Well, yes, we were made in the image of God. We are not the image of God. There's a difference. So to say we're in the image of God, it means that there are qualities about us that God has. God put his image in us. So, for example, rational thinking, personalities, having relationships. But Jesus is the exact representation of God because Jesus is God. In fact, if Jesus was not fully God, then he could not be the exact representation. So, yes, we are made in the image of God, but Jesus is the image of God. Then Paul says, not only that, he said Jesus is a person, uh, has power. Jesus has power. To prove that, he's going to talk about creation. Verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is telling this church, not only is Jesus a person, he has power. In fact, he has all the power. To prove it, he goes back to creation. And in just two verses, he makes some statements about creation. Number one, he says, Jesus existed before creation. What he says in, in verse 16. Oh, the, verse, the last part of verse 15. He said, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, that does not mean that the Father created Jesus. That, that's not what it means. That word means ranking order. In ancient days, the firstborn meant the heir, the supreme one the superior one, the one who had all the rights of the inheritance. You didn't have to be born first to have that title. Remember Isaac? Isaac was called Abraham's firstborn. But technically, Ishmael was the firstborn. But Isaac was the one who got the position and all the promises. Same thing happened to uh, uh, Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first, but Jacob was the firstborn. All that means is position. It says before the creation... Before anything was ever created, Jesus was the firstborn. He was the first of priority in creation. Jesus is first in everything. So God, what Paul is saying is in relationship with God the Father, he is the exact representation of God, and he is the heir of all things. Not only, not only that, he existed before creation. He created all things, verse 16. For by him all things were created. That word create means to, fold, to make uh, in fashion into existence. It was Jesus who created. I mean, Paul actually doubles down when he says the opposite. He says nothing 
Nothing. Not anything that was not here was not made by Jesus. The whole universe was created by Jesus. Every star, every world, every person, every atom was created by Jesus. That's what John is talking about in John chapter 1. And on Sunday night, we were studying the book of, studying the book of John a few months ago. We, we talked about Jesus is the creator. The ability to create is only for God. And here's Paul saying, do you not understand that Jesus has power? He created all things. But more than that, all things exist for him. In, in verse 16, Paul uses these, these prepositions. He says, for by him. All things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Paul says Jesus created everything, and everything was created for him, by him, and through him. In other words, not only did Jesus create everything, everything was created for him. Everything you see is for Jesus. Now, why is that important? Remember, the, these false teachers were saying the world is evil. And Paul says, oh, no, it was created for Jesus, by Jesus, in order to be, to, to honor Jesus. Everything in creation is not evil. I mean, even Lucifer and his angels started out as angels of light. So creation itself is not evil. Now, it can be used for evil purposes, but it's not evil. Jesus, all things were created, exist for him. And then my favorite verse, probably in verse 17, it says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Very strong word in the Greek language. It means that Jesus is the superglue. Everything is held together by the power of Jesus. Now, literally what he's saying is, if Jesus released it, everything would disappear. All the atoms would just go away. He is the superglue that binds everything. He is the reason the sun is shining. He is the reason the oceans don't flood everything. He is the reason you and I have a breath. Every breath we take is because of Jesus. He is the reason why this world has not been destroyed by nuclear holocaust. Jesus is holding everything together by his power. And if Jesus let go, the very atoms would explode. Do you realize how powerful Jesus is? Do you realize when you have a problem and you bring it to Jesus, you don't have to worry, does he have the power to change it? He does. But he also has the power to change your attitude toward it. He also has the power to help you get through it. He also has the power to walk with you step by step. I don't know how God is going to answer your prayers, but I do know this. He has the power to change anything and everything. And so here's Paul saying that Jesus has this power. And this power is available to us. So therefore, he can change something. He can help us survive something. Or he can help us thrive in something. But whenever you go to God in prayer, understand Jesus has the power. And then Paul says, Jesus has a plan. He has a plan. Look at 18. As he is talking about who Jesus is, Paul says, he is also head of the body of the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for his all fullness to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having been made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, rather things on earth or things in heaven. I want you to follow Paul's logic here. He says, Jesus is the head of the church. In other words, the church was not our idea. We didn't get together and say, hey, why don't we start a church? 
It's God's idea. He created it. The reason for the church is to worship God, but also to fulfill the plan of God. Now, there are many images in the Bible about the church. The most prominent one is this one about a body. It makes sense. A body has different parts, but the body works together to accomplish a goal. Well, the church is made up of different people. Everyone in this room, you have different abilities, different gifts, different talents, and we come together so that we may work together in order to do God's plan. And Paul says Jesus is the head of the church. Now, in the Greek language, the head meant not only the source and the origin, but it meant the leadership of. So please understand this. We do not follow our plans. We don't. We do not do what we want to do. That's that's a recipe for failure. What we do as a church is to follow the orders of our Lord. Well, what are his orders? Well, he tells us in verse 19 and 20. He says, beginning verse 19, for it was the Father good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Now, that word fullness means, technical word, means have the sum total of power. Here's what Paul is saying. Jesus has the sum total of power, and he dwells forever with the Father. So the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit will dwell forever for eternity. They've always existed in eternity, but they will dwell forever. That's the plan. The plan is for us to join them, verse 20. And through him, he's talking about the, remember, he's talking about the Father and the Son. They're going to dwell forever. And verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. The plan is very simple. We are to do what God wants us to do and to tell the world about this plan. Jesus is going to live with the Father. The Holy Spirit is going to live with the Father. In the same way, we are going to live forever with him if we are reconciled. Now, that word reconcile, all it means is put together. Sometimes it has the idea of like a broken vase. Now, in the old days, and I can say this because... I'm old. We used to do something called balance your checkbook. Oh, tell me other stories, Uncle Dan. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Most of you do it electronically. Some of you don't even look at it, and you should. But anyway, but we used to get a paper version of our statement, and then we take the checkbook, and that number is supposed to reconcile with that number. Some people could do this. About five seconds. Some of us took a day trying to find one penny. But that's what we were trying to do. Match up that number with that number to be reconciled. Paul says Jesus came to reconcile us. Because of his humanity, he can take the hand of a sinful mankind, you and me, and because of his divinity, he can take the hand of a holy God. And then on the cross, he could bring us together and he could say it is finished. That is the plan. And the plan for the church is to go tell the world that plan. That's why we do everything we do. Why do we do upward? To fulfill the plan of Jesus. Why do we do vacation Bible school? To fulfill the plan of Jesus. Why do we go on mission trip? Why do we feed the hungry? Why do we help those in need? To fulfill the plan of Jesus. Because we are trying to bring people into the kingdom. We're trying to get that message out, the message that God sent to us of this reconciliation. Our job as a church is to get the message out, but woe to us if we don't. 
the bloodiest day in U.S. history. It was September 17, 1862, during the Civil War, during the Battle of Antium, called Sharpsburg. 23,000 people, casualties that day. What was interesting, on September 9th, Robert E. Lee devised a plan. He sent his commanders messages on what they were to do, where they were to go. He, he separated his forces in order to surround the Union Army. He gave them this message. It was called Special Order 191. And he sent these messages to the commanders. They all got them except one. And even today, historians debate what happened. Most historians speculate the messenger as he was delivering the message, stopped to go to the bathroom. We don't know what happened, but we do know this. A Union soldier of the 27th Indiana saw this message by the fence. He gave it to his commander. The commander sent it immediately to George McClellan, the commander of the Army of the Potomac. He knew immediately what it was. It was the plan of Robert E. Lee to attack, and so he made his defenses ready for the attack. Now, today, historians will debate if it was the turning point of the war, but definitely it was the key to losing the battle. And it was a battle that was lost, and thousands of soldiers died because a special message wasn't delivered. There was consequences of that message not being delivered. Jesus formed his church in order that, to send out a special message to a lost world that Jesus is the answer, the only answer. That Jesus is the only way to heaven. That Jesus is the only way to peace. That Jesus is the only way to joy. Jesus is the only way to power. That is a message that we are to send out. And if we do not deliver that message, well, in the Civil War, people lost their physical lives. If we don't deliver that message, there are spiritual deaths. That's the purpose of the church, to worship our Lord and to deliver that message to the world. This morning, I want you to hear this message, that God loves you, and he, died on a, he sent his son to die on a cross for you, and you can have eternal life by giving your life to Jesus. That's the message. If you're online and you would like to give your life to Christ in a personal way, if you would text the word today at two. 7039850005 and a minister will call you today. But if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ, today's the day. Today's the day that you can come to him by admitting you're a sinner, believing that Jesus died for you, confessing everything to him, and you'll have the greatest gift imaginable, the gift of eternal life. It's the message we were created to bring. Will you do it this morning? If you would stand, bow your heads. In a few moments as we begin singing, and while we're singing, just come to me or one of the ministers at the front. Maybe you want to give your life to Christ. Maybe you want to join this church to say, I want to be a part of the church that delivers this message. Maybe you need to rededicate your life publicly or privately. But right now, will you ask God, Lord, what do I need to do? And what he says, will you follow? Our Father in heaven, we thank you today for 
for reminding us who Jesus is. Father, forgive us when we do not realize how much power he has. Father, forgive us when we put him just in the same categories as human leaders. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. At his name, every knee shall bow. And Father, if there's one here today in person or watching online who needs to give their life to you because they haven't done so, Father, today's the day. Call them. Help them as they take that first step. No more hesitation. No more procrastination. No more delays. Let them come right with you. And Father, we give you the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.